Welcome to the Writer's Right Podcast, the show where every writer has the right to speak their mind. I'm your host, Joshua Howe, and as always, we'll be giving attention to the last thing my guest has written and their writing process. Today's guest is someone I'm super excited to talk to. You know him as a writer at B-Ball Breakdown, a huge Philadelphia sports fan, a comic book connoisseur, and the most influential Greek on NBA Twitter. For George, sure, for yeah. sure. George Condolian, how you doing, man? Good, Josh. I'm so happy to be on. Uh, what, am I the honorary guest? Am I the first guest, the inaugural guest? Yeah, you are the inaugural guest. Yep. Wow. That's a lot of pressure. Uh, but at the same time, your expectations for your pod will be set low because I'm going to be your first guest. So you can only <laughs> go up from here. So this is a this is good for both of us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, definitely good for me because I, I have such a high profile guest for the first uh, first run. So this is awesome. It you know like I'd say. Greek Twitter is basically you, Tasmelis, and Giannis, and that's like the yeah. trifecta, right? That's like the big right. three. That's the Greek Holy Trinity, actually. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, in, in Greek churches, that those are the three names that they spit out at the end. Wow. that yeah. That's something to see. I need to go. You know, I've always wanted to go to Greece, and I've just not got there yet, but... Yeah, well, you gotta do it, because um, it's where the best food is, and the loudest goats... Um, so the loudest goats, listen, actually real quick. I know we're off track already, but yeah, <laughs> I was in Greece. I was in Greece in summer of 2016 and I was still an editor for a fan side blog called section 215. And, you know, I, I'm from a village in Greece. So like there's no Wi-Fi except in like two areas in the whole village. So they produced the whole village's Wi-Fi. So when I was, I had to get up at like weird hours, you know, there's a seven hour time difference. So I'm writing and I'm trying to stay awake because it's the middle of the night. It's, um, I think it's the summertime too. So, you know, that's basketball off season, all the, all these moves are happening. So I'm drinking my coffee and, you know, I'm, I'm finally starting to get a nice flow. And then all of a sudden, all I hear is just, bah! And I'm like, <laughs> what, the, what the hell's going on? There is a herd of pregnant goats right behind me as I'm trying to write, you know, an article about Dario Saric. And then behind me, I have 14 pregnant goats just banging away at my head. I don't even know how all of them were pregnant, but that's a story for another day, I guess. Wow, that's incredible. I wonder if they had any relation to that Taylor Swift goat. Yeah, you know, I was thinking about that too, but um, I think Greeks, Greek goats don't like Taylor Swift. Uh, my expert <laughs> opinion. There's no real reasoning behind it. Yeah, the closest I've ever been to Greece is when I was in Toronto for, like, the first time on my own, and I went to a Greek restaurant with some friends, and uh, I had, I struggled trying to figure out if it was gyro or gyro. It's a gyro. And gyro it's gyro, like a... so, you see, I wasn't even, I didn't have it either time. Yeah. This is the Canadian problem. We don't really, we, we have all these diverse things, but we don't really know how to, like, use them. Right, <laughs> yeah. Well, I'll, I'll make you Torontonians, your Canadians cultured. So uh, when I come up one day in like five years. <laughs> Definitely, man. That would be awesome. Um, so what I have you on here to talk about is the last thing you've written, which I know you did drop a piece today, but I have uh, the last thing that I was able to read of yours, so that's what we're going to do. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean... Um, um, this but, uh, is my last piece that I'm proud of, so I like it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm excited to read the new one. But, um, yeah, so your last piece that I read was uh, Sixers and Nets, Two Different Ways to Strenuous Rebuilds is the title, uh, in which you're talking about basically the stories of two different franchises, Philadelphia and Brooklyn, New Jersey turned Brooklyn, and how they're so different, but they're both you know trying to go for the same goal, which is obviously an NBA title and how they went about it, and then you kind of lay it out side by side, uh, how they go through it, uh, starting several years ago. And the Nets risked it all for a shot. We all remember the infamous, uh, the trade from... Right, yeah, <laughs> the Trading the future for... Uh, the worst trade in NBA history, without a doubt. Yeah, super brutal. So, yeah, I'm going I'm to come back to that in a second. And then, but, you know, and you mentioned in the piece about how both these teams have changed the NBA... Um, to where we are now, like King changed the NBA um, in his time in Brooklyn with, you know, Lillard ending up in Portland and Draymond ending up in Golden State and basically all of Boston. 
Right. And then, meanwhile, Philly tanked, and they changed the NBA uh, with the draft lottery reform, um, which is still not perfected yet, at least in my opinion. Um, and they've, you know, they're probably going to keep working on that. Right. Um, so my initial question is, why did you decide to write this article on this specific topic? What was it that was interesting to you about it? So just the whole concept of NBA team building is just something that intrigued me because there's so many ways to go about it, right? And there's always these conversations that we see on basketball Twitter on how to build a team and whether a team should go all in right now or whether they should just wait out until this Warriors reign, you know, goes by. And it kind of got me thinking about the teams that aren't really in the pre- – in the like Toronto, for instance, right? Toronto's in this, in this time period where they're really good and – you know, if they were at if they were at their peak like six seven years ago, we might be talking about them as you know a favorite for the title. You know, but this revolution in basketball that became the Golden State Warriors happened, and now you're you're stuck with these teams that are probably reaching their peak, um, but that still might not be 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 enough to win them a title. And then I started thinking about the teams at the bottom, right? The teams that accidentally. And purposefully, I guess, uh, find themselves at the bottom of the league, and what each team's path got, like what the paths were to get these teams to this current situation, um, and just location, right? I'm a Philly guy, but I now live in the New York City area, so um, I'm very connected to both teams. I, I I love, I enjoy watching both teams. They're both young and exciting. Um, so you know, a culmination of all that made me interested in writing about it and just reflecting on two historic, I mean, completely historic paths to, to rebuilding. And it completely changed, like you said, it completely changed the NBA, uh, not only where the players ended up, um, but also just, you know, views on team building. Yeah, it totally did. Um, it's really, it's interesting to me because, uh, I mean, like, let's take a look at the Nets for a second. So I, <laughs> I don't remember, I guess I would have been in hmm, second, first or second year university when this whole thing went down with the KG and Paul Pierce trade. And even at that time, I thought, wow, this is a terrible trade. And I'm not yeah. sure how many people actually thought it would be a good trade. I do remember a ton of people buying Brooklyn gear afterwards around university and thinking they were crazy. Um <laughs> But, like, I mean, you look back at it now, even just the um, being reminded by your article, the ages of all three guys, like, KG was 37. Yep. Like, when has a 37-year-old guy ever come in and been, like, a huge, you know, changing, massive piece for a franchise? It just, I don't think that's ever happened. I mean, um, you know, it's rare to even find a trade that impacts a franchise as it is with a player in his prime. Right. So yeah. Yeah. To go after to go after a guy like you said in the late thirties is it just seemed asinine. And I mean, you know, I I guess we'll talk about I talked through this more, but um, again, it was kind of that pressure that was put on to oh we need to win now. We're the we moved to Brooklyn. You know, we're changing our whole culture and we're going to become a winning culture. You know, I think mm-hmm. this was like when they moved to Bro- to to Brooklyn, they were like three or four years off of, you know, a horrendous season where they finished with, a, I think they're like fourth or fifth worst record in NBA history. So they're trying to, you know, combat the idea that they're just the same old New Jersey Nets with a better look and a cooler owner, part owner in Jay-Z. But um, yeah, so like you said, I mean, trading for a guy that old and, and the initial reaction that were probably mixed, right? So you had... Uh, you had Brooklyn shipping out, you know, years worth of picks and years worth of swapping picks, um, and I'm sure many thought that you know what Brooklyn's going to be better than Boston anyway down the line with this with this current team, you know. So the pick swaps are almost like nothing. Well, turns out it resulted in some of the most promising young wing players in the NBA right now. Yeah, and I mean, the pri- the season prior to that trade, like that Boston team, so they were a year younger, and that Boston team went like a game over 500. They were 41 and 40. Right. And they lost to Carmelo's, I'll call them fluky, the fluky Knicks in the playoffs. 
Um, that was the year the Knicks where uh, they like learned what three pointers were, and Woodson Woodson had them shooting threes, and yeah, yeah, that was that was a crazy year. Um, and and I then, think, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I was, I was gonna say, I think even to then a year prior, you know, a year prior to that, or maybe two seasons prior to that, they were. They were pushed to seven games by a Sixers team led by an Andre Iguodala, who you know was great in his own right. But you know they were the seventh seed, and they got pushed to seven games before going on to losing to Miami. So you know, like you're like you're saying, I mean, this wasn't a a core that was winning like just the year before. Yeah, uh, I don't know. It's it's crazy. Even looking back on that, like Darren Williams, his whole reputation was different back then. Yeah, and you know Joe Johnson was like he was Joe Johnson. <laughs> now he's sort of uh, I don't know if people would consider him a super sub, but not at this point probably. But he's a solid sub now, a solid role player. Right. Um, and and they just ended up getting steamrolled by Miami. And I'm not sure if anybody saw that being any different either, because at the time they were the beast in the East kind of thing. Right. Um, yeah. Just like just looking back at that reading through your piece and looking back at that Nets team it just seems it seems even worse in hindsight it was it didn't seem good then and now it seems even sillier yeah. that's wild so on the Sixers side uh that same that summer that the trade happened was the hinky hiring mm-hmm. so and then we've gone through the whole obviously it's not completely done yet but we're still going through the process we've gone through what do we say like most of the process like they're not tanking anymore so i guess they've gone through most of it now we're just seeing like what the results are right yeah this is they're like they're on the other side right now but just like a couple couple steps on the other side right now (laughs) yeah so looking at the process like they had I don't, I don't know if this is 100% fair, but they don't have him on the team anymore. So I'll say that Noel, Nerland's Noel was kind of a miss in the draft, and then they hit on Embiid, they missed on Okafor, hit on Simmons, and then Fultz is kind of to be determined. And then they had that underrated move that I love, because I'm a big fan of Dario, and they got him for Alfred Payton in the draft, yeah. and they traded, which is huge. On, in terms of uh, just the process in general, where do you stand on it, like, right now? Uh, do you think it worked? Do you think it was worth it? I, I think it definitely worked, and it was definitely worth it. Um, I mean, you look back, right, and it's a beautiful example on the risks of tanking and also the benefits to tanking, right? So you miss out on, on Nerlens Noel, who, you know, gave them, I want to say a solid two seasons in total because he didn't really come on until his, um, I mean, he missed his first season and then his, uh, the second half of his rookie year was pretty historic. And then he gave another good whole year and then was kind of iffy his last half year in Philadelphia. Yeah. But, um, you know, so there you shed there, there. Remember that Noel pick was a result of a trade for Drew holiday, who was, uh, pretty much viewed as their, cornerstone but not a guy that could really you know hold maintain a franchise and carry the carry the load by himself um and there were misses too like that michael carter williams that same draft you know uh was taking two picks ahead of Giannis Atentacumbo. i mean yeah you know there's a lot of there's a lot of misses um that you can go back and say you know hanky wasn't the perfect drafter uh he took a lot of risks um and you know his biggest one panned out joel Embiid. It's been a wait, and you know it's still really early to tout him as um, a stable product. But I mean, from what we've seen so far, he's an all-star caliber player, top three center type player, and um, you know so. And it came after you know two and a half season, two and a half. I mean, almost three seasons of injury. So you know, I think the process worked beautifully. Um, and yeah, it was extreme at times. There was a lot of bad basketball that one season they won 10 games. Um, but it brought them, brought them Joel Embiid and it brought them Ben Simmons. And like you said, Markel Fultz is still to be determined, but they were able to accumulate those assets to trade for the number one pick in the draft last summer because of the process and because of the moves they made, because they were taking on salary while also, uh, picking up first round, second round picks. You know, there was it was all a methodical plan, and no move was random. Each move had a purpose, uh, and 
you know, it's really crazy that you could buy in the city of Philadelphia uh, into losing because this is such a, you know, this fan base is very passionate and they expect winners every year no matter what the roster looks like. So overall, I mean, the movement was great. Um, it, it brought out a lot of great think pieces from a lot of great writers. And um, I think now we'll see the end results in the next couple of years. We'll see uh, how the team is built around these uh around these players that were brought up through the process and um, then we can make our final judgment. But as of now, I would say, yeah, it's complete success. Yeah. I remember watching, uh, I watched that full year of Wiggins and Embiid on Kansas. Mm-hmm. I'm not a college basketball guy at all. Uh, not that I don't like it. I just like, I've never felt like I had the time because I'm just watching so much NBA basketball. Right. Uh, and I know that I'm going to get to see the next best prospects uh, the year after anyway. But uh, most of the time, but um, I watched that whole year because because of Wiggins and he's Canadian and it was, you know, he had so much hype coming around him and Embiid just happened to be on his team um, and also a high level prospect. And I remember watching them every single game and there were legitimate moments where even then I was wondering, is Embiid better than Wiggins? You know, it was weird right. because Wiggins would have those games where he always seemed to get up to play Jabari, which was cool to watch but like other than that he float around a lot like he still does um his his aggressiveness was always kind of in question and his mentality and personality but in Embiid would show flashes he uh just rim running a lot the length and size of him yeah it it was crazy and now obviously he's (laughs) I think most people would take him over Wiggins Um, right so yeah yeah, it was was huge even yeah um so how about faults uh, I, I know this is like every Philly fan's bane right now, but I have to ask, like, where do you stand on him right now? I've seen some recent videos with him shooting, and he actually looks like he's getting better yeah. and healing better, and yeah, it's a, I on a, it's a situation I've never seen before personally in my time covering basketball. Um, <laughs> you know, we have the Michael Kidd Gilchrist of the world who just never could shoot and are trying to relearn their mechanics, but this is the number one pick in the draft who was. You know, one of his perks, one of his main skill set uh, was being able to hit the outside shot mm-hmm. and that complementing his game on getting to the rim. I mean, yeah, you know, this this is a key part of his game. And, you know, in summer league, it looked good. It looked OK. Mm-hmm. And then just fast forward a month in preseason, it seems like something in between that time happened. I don't know. You know, I, I do think he was injured at one point. Uh, and I do think that the injury was a little more serious than maybe the Sixers handled it. Um, but I'm not calling that the major effect of what this shot is. I think the shot is also, I think the injury also gave them an excuse to hold him out more until his shot was looking fine. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's a stupid situation, really. I mean, it, it seems like it's a Sixers ritual to just sit out there. Uh, first round draft picks uh, for the first year at least <laughs> and um, yeah I, I don't know it's it's so intricate and you know every video shows us something different you know there's promising videos and there's other videos where it looks like he can't even get his shoulder he can't even get his elbow above his shoulder and he's pushing the ball again and everything's hitting the front of the rim and you know of course the impact of Jason Tatum being such a success in Boston is is just you know, making this even louder that the Sixers drafted a guy, changed his shot, and now are left with, you know, not depleted assets, but assets that aren't as attractive because they traded up for this kid. While the kid, while Jason Tatum is balling in Boston, and you wonder, oh, maybe if things worked out differently and the trade never happened, what kind of situation and what light would we be viewing the Sixers right now? Maybe they'd be two spots higher in the east you know maybe they'll maybe they're the same as they are now but you know they have a promise they have two two promising wing players um that will excel them in the in the future and they'll be able to build around those guys and now Fultz kind of turned into a question mark right so we don't even know what Fultz is um you know and i wouldn't be against for a blockbuster trade i wouldn't be against trading him if it involved obviously a big return but you know he's turned into such a question mark that makes you wonder like what what really happened what 
did the team do to mishandle the situation? Yeah, um, I mean, like, you know, for those who are, people love to, you know, point and laugh in, in uh, retrospect, but when you looked at, like, Fultz in college, like, it makes sense why Philly took him at number one. Yeah. Like, his skill set fits um, in next to a guy. Like, they knew Ben Simmons wasn't shooting yet. Um, right. That wasn't his best skill set and stuff. But, like, Fultz in college was, like, I think around a 40% three-point shooter. Like, he was a really good three-point shooter. Yeah, um, I mean, he was an all-around player. Yeah, and he's he can get his own shot, and he can cut um, off-ball. Um, we saw some of that even in summer league. Like, he just he fits well. And, obviously, um, Robert Covington has been um, a great pickup for the Sixers, and he filled uh, he's filled some gaps there. But, um, but yeah, like, this wasn't, like, you know, at the time, it's still, like, a, I think it's still a pick you make, not knowing that this is all going oh, to happen. For sure, Like, for even sure. with, even when you're looking at Jason Tatum. So, like, yeah, I think people need to, like, stop pointing so much and laughing at Fultz. And, it, uh, and it's, remember, it's not even, like, a set thing that this kid's a bust yet, you know what I mean? Yeah. We've, it, seen, we've seen, we've seen all the jokes with, with, uh, Joel Embiid being the next guy going in and Ben Simmons, you know. Mm. suffering a foot fracture and people calling him a tall Michael Carter Williams. You know? Yeah, that's that's horrific. Yeah. That's and so, you know, Fultz, Fultz I, I still believe he's going to be a good player. Um, obviously, I, I don't know what's going on behind the scenes. and I don't think anybody who does know behind the scenes would even speak out against this because this seems to be a very high issue within the organization. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean... Again, it's going to take time, but right now, yeah, it's it's a tumultuous situation. Mm-hmm. And it, it's a uh, the the process too is great timing due to the emergence of the Warriors. <laughs> like you know, you, they're all still young, and you have all this time now, still really to not worry too much about. You know, they want to make the playoffs, but you don't need to be um, great too quickly because the Warriors window will eventually close. Don't know when exactly that's going to be, and money's going to come into effect soon. Um, and even this year, we've seen a little bit of vulnerability because their bench isn't as good as in years past, and Iguodala's right. getting older and stuff like that. But this is a really good, like, the timing of the process also worked out really well um, because of the Warriors monolith. I think it, the timing in terms of, like, you know, five years from now, those guys are all going to be, all the core guys will be in their prime. And like, right. who like who knows where they're going to be then? Yeah, I mean, it, it's, that was one of the key points of the process too. I mean, that was that started before the Warriors reign, but you know, it allowed th- this whole, like you said, this whole losing on purpose, and um, in the meantime, just picking up those gems, right? Like T.J. McConnell and Robert Covington are both undrafted. Mm-hmm. We're both undrafted guys, and now they're key role players. I mean. I seriously don't know where the Sixers would be this season without those two players. Um, you know, and they're setting up nicely. Everybody, the contract, situa- contract situations, um, I guess, could be concerning. But, I mean, you're going to pay your top guys their rookie max anyway. So, basically, right now, it's finding the right pieces that fit the, fit the timeline, which, is, which can be a little difficult. Um, like... How do I how do I phrase? It's not that you don't want to be good too soon because obviously you want to be as good as you can every yeah. year. Yep. But you want to you want to pick up guys that still fit your mold, right? Um, this trade deadline coming up, right? Like they might make a move right now if they they might ship a second for like a Marco Bellinelli or you know an aging player that can help them now. But that's not giving up a significant a- asset, you know. So they still want to keep those those first round picks, all those young assets. Because then that's how they can acquire those guys that can grow with their current core, and um, eventually, you know, once that window that window closes for the Warriors, it'll open up for the Sixers, hopefully. Yeah, it's interesting too. Like you mentioned, like uh, McConnell and Covington, and how they were like undrafted and um, you know put through the uh, was D League and now G League, um, yeah. and guys getting picked up that way, and even the Nets. Like that's kind of how uh, Sean Marks is. You know, doing some of his moves like Lavert, he did got through. Uh, he's been was through, went through the G League and stuff, and has now come up and like this is how he's get managing to get assets and creating talent. Even though he, yeah. even though he has 
you know, even though he started with no assets, really, and um, basically no wiggle room at all, so he's just slowly creating it. And I've noticed this with um, a few teams, and that it's this is becoming more of a... It's, it's happening more often that um, teams are starting to work internally, especially teams that aren't, like, big free agent destinations uh, or teams that don't have very many assets, and they're starting to cultivate their own talent and just work in-house. Um, like, that's, that's what the Raptors have been doing for the past few years, and mm-hmm. obviously this year you're seeing it work out really well with guys like Fred Van Vliet, Pascal Siakam, Lorenzo Brown. Um, so the, the Raptors are getting more uh, value than what they're paying on their contracts. And so you can see it happening in other uh, parts of the league as well. And it's interesting. I wonder if you think more teams are going to try that method um, as they see other teams be successful with it. And, like, the G League was, ha- even when it, as the D League, like, it's it's always been, like, in a weird spot. Like, when you look at play, uh, other leagues like the NHL, their minor league, I can never remember exactly what it's called, but their minor league is... Uh, looked the at AHL. AHL. The okay, AHL. yeah, yeah. Yep. So there, it's looked at as like a, uh, like a really good thing. Like teams use it all the time. Like it's a big deal. Like if you're sent there, it's not like a big deal. A lot of the time, you know, even uh, big name players will go down there if they're rehabbing and stuff like that. Um, whereas in the NBA, that's that's a no go. You're never gonna send a big name player if they're coming back from injury, even uh, right. to go down there and rehab because they'll they just won't do it. They'll see it as like a a slight to them. Mm-hmm. Um, but so do you think with the way this has been going and teams starting to util- utilize the G League more, do you think that uh, stigma, I guess, is going to change? I think so. I think it will take a long time, though. But, um, you know, it's going to be dependent on the NBA's uh, rules um, and if they can continue to change it to make it more G League friendly and even more organizationally friendly, right? Mm-hmm. So... The reason why it works in the NHL and the MLB is because, you know, roster movement is a little more free. Here, you know, we got we got these two-way contracts, um, which are great. Is you get two extra guys that you can put into your regular roster, but if they stay, what is it, forty? Is it forty-five days? Forty days? Mm. They stay spend forty-five days with an NBA team. Yeah. You have to either waive them or um, sign them to, you know, a guaranteed contract. Mm-hmm. Um, also, if you have 15 guys on your roster, sending a guy down to the G League is not going to take is not going to mean you have 14 guys on your roster. No, they still take up a roster spot playing in the G League. So I, I think the NBA is going to have to reform the way they look at um, roster call ups uh, for the G League to be utilized in the way that they want to. Um, and I, I think we're going to see an impact in the next couple of years because. You know, there's going to be guys who'd prefer to play for less money in America than go over to Europe. You know, it's, yeah. We 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 always say, like for us, it's easy to say, oh, they're crazy. You know, go make your millions in Europe, but that's a big move. It's a big life decision. You know, you're, not, yeah. you're moving away from everything you've ever known to go play in Europe. Um, and I'm sure there's guys that would, you know, kill for a chance to to play in developmental league and, um. And, and chances of getting a call up, no matter how how small it is, you know, everybody. It's a basketball player's dream to play in the NBA, so I think the NBA will uh, will capitalize on that in the next coming years. Yeah, like you wonder. Obviously, there are two younger guys, but you wonder like that how that could uh, could have changed something like the the ball situation with Lonzo's brothers, right? And they like they're obviously Americans, but they his their Lavar wanted them to play pro, so they got sent to Lithuania. And that's where they're playing now. And, like, who who knows if they even wanted to do that. Um, but if there had been other options, like, you know, that's that's something interesting, especially for players that have been, that are older and more established as well. Um, but I think it's I think it's an interesting thing to look at as a route, as, like, a third route that hasn't really existed the same way before as trying to go in for a title. When you look at the other ways, like, like that you wrote about with the Nets and the Sixers, that they had their two extremes where one just went for a big shot instantly and the mm-hmm. other uh, tanked all the way until they found the talent they needed and are doing it that way. And those are those are usually the only kind of methods really, like not necessarily like the Nets where you take a huge shot right away, but like a similar, that's an extreme, but um, 
a similar way to like those are look are the two ways that people look at winning a title. It's either you're going to make moves and build a team that way they can get there, or you're going to tank and you're just going to find the talent that way. No one's ever really considered, I don't think, um, except for teams, obviously. Uh, that they can do it internally and really build towards winning a title that way. Yeah, I, I think the Raptors are a perfect example of that. Yeah, it's been really fascinating. The, and the 905 is a, a really great uh, yeah. G League team. Like, they're doing really well even right now, even with all like their players. Like, Lorenzo Brown is a great player for them, and he's been in and out, you know, coming up uh, when we've had some injuries and stuff to, like, Kyle Lowry and <clears throat> Fred Van Vliet. He's yeah. come up and provided some good minutes. Um, so yeah, it's, it's been really cool to see. So you're obviously a pro process. So do you think that, like, do you think Hanky deserved to stay or do you want to see him get another job and like where, or, uh, yeah. what do you think? Cause like I do, I think, I think he deserves to get another job. I'm not really sure where, but like, even just from an outside perspective as a non Philly fan, it was really fascinating to watch him work and try something that no one had ever done before. I, yeah, I, I think he does deserve another job, like you said, but, you know, I, I think Sam Higgy is a very adaptive guy, and, you know, sometimes a lot of other a lot of other people in the media just kind of viewed him as this guy who was like, oh, I'm just going to, you know, an overconfident guy who was, who was going against the norm and saying, I'm just going to lose and I'm going to gain all these assets, and he's not like that, he's a... He's an intelligent guy. I mean, I had the chance to talk to talk to him for like ten minutes, and it was the most I've ever learned about basketball and team building in my life. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and um, he he's an adaptive guy. I, I would love to see him in a situation um, like right the Sixers when he he joined the Sixers. They were you know usually an eight to ten seed, seven to ten seed who I think were playoff contender were playoff in the playoffs like I don't know three of their last five years or something like that. Uh, but, you know, there were never significant threats. I would like to see him join a team that, you know, is on the edge. You know, I would have loved to see him join, like, for instance, just as, as an example, like this Bucks team, you know? Yeah. What would, he, what would we, he have done in that situation? How would he have handled already having a star and building around that star? You know, that's, that's what we didn't get to see in Philadelphia and – um, I, I think he would do well in in that role, and I, it would. It's going to take a while for people to get over the whole radical tank. Yeah, I think that that is a really interesting scenario too, right? Because the same thing is happening with Giannis that happened with LeBron when he was mm-hmm. really young, where he's like he's getting too good too quickly, right, for his team, um, and they, the team just like they can't seem to. Obviously, Cleveland had. Uh, <laughs> they had multiple opportunities to try and build a good team. Like, honestly, if you took this roster and put it around LeBron when he was that young, the Cavs probably do quite a bit better. Yes. But, um, but yeah, the same, it's the same similar, it's a similar thing with, um, the Bucks now that was happening with LeBron. So hopefully they can manage to, uh, get their roster, well, one healthy, but also good enough to get Giannis to stay there. Of course, he's an intensely loyal guy. We heard about that whole Jason Kidd thing and him right. trying to save his job. So maybe they won't have a super tough time trying to get Giannis to stay. So I want to talk a bit about uh, your writing process Yeah. as well, just because that's part of the uh, focus of this podcast is to discuss writing in general because both you and I are different types of writers too, right? Like we both write about basketball, which is fun mm-hmm. and I love it. And I've been doing it for, uh, I mean, I'm only, I've only, there are things I can go back now that say like I've re- I've written within, I don't know, like this year, last year, I wasn't writing a ton about basketball last year. I took a bit of a hiatus, but this year, um, then go back and I can enjoy reading and think I did well, but I, but I've been writing about hoops for, like before I was in uh, university, so like six yeah. six ish years, a long time, and it's been really fun. Um, but I also write fiction and poetry, and that's something that I want to kind of bleed into this podcast as well. And I know you've written like you wrote you wrote a comic book, right? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Did. Which is it's, like uh, it's crazy. It's, that's... it's so cool. I mean, it was a child's comic, and it's it's coming out this month. The art's going to be done. It was it was more of a present for my cousins, but. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm, 
yeah, I've written, I think I actually got into writing in general, um, writing some screenplays that never came to fruition. Oh, okay. Um, comedy, I was a stand-up comic for a nice year. Wow. Um, I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. Nah, I mean, it did not go well. <laughs> <laughs> it did not go well. <laughs> wow. I would have loved to have seen that. So when I read this piece, um, and I've, I've read your stuff before, obviously, you seem to write like, even in sports, like I separate, when I sit down to write fiction and when I sit down to write about basketball, they're two very different things for me. I have to be in two different mindsets. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know if it's like that for everybody, but for me, that's the way it is. So I noticed when in this piece, um, especially, even though you're writing about basketball, you write like you're telling a story. Like it's like you're telling a, a friend about history. And so is that sort of, the way you think before you write, like, do you sit down and you're thinking that I'm going to write this like I'm uh, trying to, like, sitting around a campfire almost, like, telling a story? Like, is, is, I think, yeah. Yeah, ahead. I mean, yeah, like, for me, uh, I've always believed that the most the, the most interesting um, pieces that I've both written and read are something I'm passionate about, right? So something I connect to. Um, I... You know, some of my best basketball posts were about Yanis Antetokounmpo and um, Nikos Galis, uh, you know, just two Greek legends in basketball. And I felt so connected to them because, you know, those, those were two guys that I had uh, that I was able to look up to, um, you know, and I, I feel the same way about when I write about even subjects that, you know, people might not seem to be passionate about. But I'm passionate about this whole situation about team building. So. I love what I, what I do first is um, I love to research when it comes to basketball. Researching is my favorite part about writing basketball. Um, I think compiling a good research allows you to tell your story um, and tell, allows you to tell you an unbiased story as well. Um, so, you know, for this Nets Sixers piece, I started off reading, I mean, I want to say like up to 17 to 18 Nets articles. Um, and because I was a little more comfortable with the Sixers, um, I read about five to ten Sixers pieces too throughout just throughout these time periods um and you know really getting a feel um and for how people felt at the time and how people feel about the situation now um you know you want to you want to read both ends of the spectrum and you want to see where you fall you want to see if you fall in the middle or you want to see if you fall on one side um so you can really just start to construct your story and you know when I read basketball, you know, I read a lot of basketball that's strictly analytical mm-hmm. and strictly, but, and I love it. I mean, you know, to the people who are able to do that and make it interesting, like kudos to them. Uh, for me personally, as a writer, I just, that's how I feel more comfortable. You know, I can tell, I can tell a story. I can make it interesting. I can, you know, have little moments where maybe I crack a joke or maybe I throw a dramatic little hint and, it's perfect because, you know, you're dramatizing something that's basketball. It's a sport. It's something that's supposed to be, you know, dramatic in, in its own sense, right? Every game has some drama to it. And for me, it makes more sense to just bring that kind of drama into my writing when I'm talking about these situations. So, yeah, I mean, obviously there's different processes when it's writing basketball and fiction. Like for fiction, I love just taking my most extreme emotions right and just putting them on into an idea that's for me that that's both like a therapeutic thing for me and also the way i can tell my best stories like i just want to put you know my most extreme fantasies my most extreme emotions and turn it into a compelling story um and i i think that's kind of how i made my mark you know when when people have when people see a post, you know, they, they want that. I think they, they come to read my stuff knowing, you know, there's going to be, there's going to be a little hint of drama. It's going to be a story somewhere. So, um, you know, I've taken that trademark and I've just kind of ran with it and I've enjoyed it a lot. Yeah. I think it's interesting to, um, find people's niches. Mm -hmm. Um, most people, I think once they've been doing this for a bit they sort of they eventually figure out what works or what they're best at and then 
that's what they usually dive into. Like, I know what I'm best at with basketball writing, and it's not, like, you know, stat creation or super, <laughs> super intense analytical stuff even. Um, and I, I like stat hunting and things like that, too, and uh, the research part of it. But um, I, I'm much more of a, as a person whose mind works in the realm of the creative first and foremost, Mm-hmm. I'm, my initial uh, thoughts are always to make it, you know, what's the story? What's the first line and what's the last line? How am I capping this? Um, and then, you know, how am I describing it? Because description for me is huge. And that's kind of what I've done and found success that way. So I see that and I, I understand that uh, need to carve out a niche for yourself and just using what you really enjoy and then delving into that I think that's the best way to go when you're trying to figure out um, how it is you want to write what it, what it is you want to write definitely so I also wanted to ask is there uh, a particular reason why you write about basketball is it just because you find it fun or do you want to like educate people or you just want to uh get a story across or yeah i mean getting the way i got into basketball writing um was in reaction to the michael carter williams trade actually (laughs) wow Uh, i don't think i ever wrote a post in my reaction which you know looking back i would um regret it completely if i did write a post about that michael carter trade williams trade reaction um, <laughs> i was not i was not as educated about basketball as i am now but um <laughs> um yeah so i don't know when i i've been writing basketball and uh for since then and i think it's mostly because i enjoy it and because you know i'm able to talk about a sport that i love and I just enjoy watching. I mean, you know, who who would can, out there can say, you know, I get paid for a hobby or I get recognition for a hobby that I enjoy, you know? Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's that's why basketball is so fun. You, know, you sit down, you watch a game, right? It's something we'd be doing anyways, right? If you weren't a basketball writer, I'm sure you'd still be sitting down watching Raptors games. So this is turning in – this is – meshing two hobbies this is watching basketball and this is writing and this is putting it together and you know i i love telling the story i love telling a story every time i i think of something to write about when it comes to basketball like whether it's a game recap i want to tell a story of that game you know i want to make it interesting i don't want to do the same old bland recap it's i i take pride in in like you said creating a story and that is my niche and i i think I think every good writer has to really find what they're passionate about, about each aspect of writing. And, um, my aspect is using my emotions and, you know, putting it on paper and allowing people to read about sports in in a fun way. Yeah, definitely. And, um, you mentioned that you wrote that comic, uh, for your cousins. So another classic question that I'm always interested in, when it comes to writing is do you think of audience when you write at all because i know a lot of people especially with um basketball writing you typically are writing it and then posting it immediately in a community for people to see mm-hmm. whereas if you're writing something like fiction i you, you know it's more of a risk in some ways in that you don't know if anyone's ever going to read <laughs> going to read it right uh you know i've written things before that no one's ever ended up reading and except for myself um so you might have different mindsets for different things or maybe it's just the same one like like for me for example i don't i have the same mindset no matter what i'm writing i don't write for an audience at all i'd write for myself um mm-hmm. and what i'm interested in and then uh, if other people like it that's great and if they don't that's also okay because maybe it's something else that they're interested in yeah i mean thinking about an audience is only important if you're after a certain goal right so like if you just signed a publishing deal with a book company and this book company is like all right we need your next book to sell this much yeah then you're going to be thinking about audience a little more than (laughs) you know yeah that's true um but yeah like you said i mean when you write something for yourself you take more pride in it right so like 
<laughs> even if even if I write something and nobody ever reads it, you know, I want to go back and look at it and be like, you know what? That was a pretty good post. You know, that was a pretty good story I wrote. You know, there's countless things on, on my laptop that I've written that nobody will probably ever see. But, you know, sometimes I'll go back on it and I'm like, you know what? I did a good job. It's a confidence booster, right? When you can take pride into something that you write, it's um, it's amazing. It's incredible. And for this comic book, for my cousins, I mean, you know, my audience is obviously my little cousins. So I, I had some fun. I, I wrote myself into my own story, which nobody should ever do. But <laughs> <laughs> I wrote myself into, into my own story. Plot twist, spoiler alert. If you guys were waiting to read my comic for my cousins, okay, just you know, skip over this segment of the pod, but <laughs> plot twist, I am the villain in the end. Bam. Ooh. I'm just waiting for my cousin's reactions, really. Those are going to be adorable, but, you know, <laughs> it's, again, it's something I created, and, you know, I'm working with this really talented kid um, uh, who's who's drawing the whole thing, um, and, you know, being able to just see something you wrote come to life in the form of art, it's... It's incredible, man. I mean, the whole writing process is just in, insanely rewarding, whether it's financially or emotionally or, you know, whatever you, you want, in, you, whatever you want your goals to be with writing, you know, if you really love it enough and you put your passion and effort into it, you'll get to where you want to go. Yeah, definitely. Writing is one of those things where... Um it's not necessarily, obviously it matters, but it's not necessarily talent that gets you where you need to go. It's just being crazy enough to keep going right? until you get to wherever you need to go. And there's that example with, uh, like you said about knowing, uh, um, oh, I'm losing my thought here. Oh, about, uh, uh, writing first, you start writing for yourself and then you start writing for, uh, an audience. Uh, mm-hmm. there's that, like a classic example, right? Is, uh, Doyle writing Sherlock Holmes. He wrote all of those stories because he loved doing them and obviously he was mm-hmm. getting paid. And then he killed off his character and then um, there was obviously a public uproar. But he brought him back ultimately because he needed money. And, yeah. uh, so yeah. he kept writing him for that reason. But um, uh, So obviously the real life situations factor in. But I, I always think, and I've been fortunate enough to um, try and always have my mentality that uh, I should be writing for myself. But as I like seeing what other people think because with writing, that everyone's the method, the methodology of the way you write is valid, just as valid as anyone else's, because it always ends up turning out something. If you do it right, unique, which is the best part of writing. Right. So yeah, I, I mean, completely agree. It's the last writing question. I want to know: Do you have any weird writing quirks like? Do you need, do you need to like have a bowl of only brown M and M's beside you or something while you're writing, or do you need absolute silence? <laughs> yeah, or, I mean, yeah. No, yeah, I mean, okay, this is really weird, but I never really thought about this until you asked me this question. Mm-hmm. But um, I always write laying down. <laughs> oh, that's interesting. You know? Yeah, I like that. I I, I don't know why. Um, and I don't suggest it <laughs> because, you know, obviously I think it's scientifically proven that you're more, um, productive <laughs> standing. Is but, it like, is it lying on your stomach or your back or what? N- nah. Um, on your side? Uh, honestly, I think it's on my back more. Um, okay. <laughs> so I have, I'm laying on my back and, you know, I have the laptop on my stomach, which can't be good for your health either. But, <laughs> but, um, yeah. And then. I drink a a ton of water while I'm writing. Like, I mean, I have to have, like, six bottles of water. Um, Like, for instance, for I want to say for every, like, 400, 500 words I write, I I think I go through six water bottles. Like, I I don't know what it is. I don't know if I'm, like, expending energy or dehydrating myself. (laughs) But, yeah, a lot of water and laying down on my back. I never even realized that until you asked me that question. It's very interesting. How about you? Yeah, you got any of those fun quirks? Uh, it's funny you should say that because I I can't write without a glass of water beside me. Yeah, I need it. Um, I don't I don't think I drink as much as as you do. Um, I usually just need it almost there. Like I don't I don't even know how much I will I will go through it. Sometimes I'll get up and pause and refill, but um, it's more just like having it there. Yeah, I don't like know an aesthetic purpose. Yeah, I don't know exactly what it is, but 
yeah, I need it there. Other than that, not too much. I prefer writing in silence, but uh, I can manage to write with noise around me. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, no. So that, that's really my only quirk. I'm a pretty boring writer. Other than that, I can do it whatever. Don't, you know what? Don't degrade yourself like that, Josh. You seem like a very fun guy. <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've always said, like, there are people that say, oh, they're like, writer, that must be really interesting. And I'm like, well, if you want to come over and watch me do it, I'm sure you'll yeah. suddenly find out that you hate it because it's 90% of it is me just staring out the window. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> have you, so like, have you ever had like a friend or, or someone like sitting there while you're writing, you know, like where it's just like, there's an understanding, like, right. Are you like the writer in your friend group? You know? Oh yeah. Because, I'm, I'm the, yeah. I'm the only one who reads in my friend group. Yeah. So so like, you know, sometimes there's those days where it's just like, listen, man, I got to get something out. I got to write this thing out right now. But if you want to come and hang, like you can do it. And then, you know, it won't take me too long. You know, one of those situations. Yep. Yeah. I just always feel bad for the people around me while I'm writing because, you know, I try to you know, share my attention. But like if I'm writing something and I'm like starting something creative, like almost 100 percent of the time, I'm just staring at the screen. And then like they're saying something to you. and You're like, wait, what What did you say? And then you go back to writing. Like, yeah, it's 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 so funny. I have no clue how I still have a personal life. <laughs> yeah, man, me neither. Uh, I'm I'm surprised all my friends haven't just disowned me by now. But uh, yeah, so uh, we're running out of time here. So I'll start to wrap this thing up. Is there anything you'd like to uh, plug? Um, yeah, I mean, you can follow my Twitter on at Georgie the Greek. Um, if you like comics, uh, you know, the handle for my comic book Twitter is also uh, on my sports page. So, um, yeah, I mean, just, you know, check out for some of my basketball stuff on B-Ball Breakdown. Um, and, you know, by the end of February, I'll have uh, my comic uh, available digitally for free, obviously. Um, so if you guys just wanted to read a nice little fun story, not the best story, not the most unique superhero story, but good one for kids if you ever need a bedtime story for your little cousins or your children um but yeah you can pretty much get all my rating on twitter um and yeah that, that's about it cool well thank you for coming on again george it was awesome to talk to you for the first time i don't know we'll have to see uh i feel like our chemistry is pretty good we might i might have to have you on again uh, soon oh no you better have me on again that's that's the thing with me i'm not just a one-hit wonder with podcasts so just be ready i'm coming back folks I am definitely ready. So you'll be able to find the uh, Writer's Write podcast on bumpers.fm. If you're doing it on like a laptop or computer and want to listen that way, you can just search Writer's Write podcast. Or if you have the app, you can also uh, search it on there and find it that way. You can also follow the pod on Twitter at Writer's Write pod, which is where the links to the episodes will be posted, and I will share them as well. Until then, you can also follow me at Howvolution on Twitter, and you can find my own work online at Raptors Republic, B-Ball Breakdown, and Scene Creek. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 